Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Today we're in Romans chapter 15. We're Guys, we're getting close. Uh, we're not too far off from finishing the book, but Romans 15, 7 through 13 is where we'll be at today. And it says this, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order for the Gentiles that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and he who will arise to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Verse 13, I want to cling on to this one. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord, and we'll just show our cards ahead of time. We want to abound in hope. The God of joy and the God of peace and the God of hope, those are, those are things that we need, so we want to press into that and go, hey, how does this work, Lord? Let me see that and let me experience that in you. That, that's going to be our hope today. God, we pray that you would be with us. Um, just ask to call my heart. Uh, be with us in what we do today. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would draw near through the word, uh, that you would show us what needs to be uh, seen, that you would draw us near to you, that you would let us see tangible hope and peace and joy in you. Uh, and let us back away to see that your plan is so much greater than maybe we have uh, thought or maybe we um, have acknowledged prior. So do your work in our hearts. We pray that in your name, God. Amen. One of the... One of the questions believers have asked over the ages is something like, what is the purpose of the reconciling work of God through Jesus? And another way to say that is just, why, why did God send Jesus? And we can have our kids go like, hey, to, to die on the cross and save you. Yeah, okay, that, that's true. But, but what was he trying to accomplish fully through sending Jesus? The essential drive is how, how grand is the plan of redemption? How big is the plan of salvation? Did God just kind of uh, send Jesus to live the life that you and I just weren't quite able to and then die for the sins of people who rejected him uh, and then rise again just to make salvation possible, all to kind of throw redemption out there as uh, one option for people to take and enjoy if they want to, uh, and then they can kind of enjoy it however they want and in their own ways. If God is sitting back with this offer of redemption, just crossing his fingers, going, oh, please pick me. Oh, please honor me. Oh, oh please know me. And then being fine, as long as you pick him, uh, that you just do it however you want. You can do it by yourself. You can, you can honor him however you want. You just kind of live out your faith however you want, as if the entire storyline of the Bible leads to just a random group of people disconnected from one another, but hey, at least they're not going to hell. Or is that kind of a short-sighted view of the grand plan of God? And is there actually something far more beautiful that God is doing? And yeah, I'm, I'm using a little hyperbole here, a little bit of exaggeration to kind of set what we're doing here. But it's so easy in a world that is focused on individuality and, and personal choice uh, to then take that worldview of individualism and place it over top of salvation and Christianity. And to see salvation through the lens of everything the world is telling you. And then that makes salvation about just you. And that means you take things like your personal faith 
way too far. And everything becomes about your personal relationship with God and your sanctification and your holiness and your prayers and your life and your walk and your fruit and just your. And there's a thing that needs to be acknowledged in this world of personal responsibility. Like that can't be ignored. Like you, you have to take responsibility for your actions, but we need to make sure not to so hyper-focus on the self that we can't see the bigger picture that God is redeeming a people. Not just a person, not random persons. And hear me in light of what we've looked at for the last several weeks, not disconnected people, but a people. Look at the metaphors through the word a tribe, a bride, a body, which is the church. With that in mind, we can maybe understand why Paul over and over in chapter 14 and 15 has brought to us the topic of unity, 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 unity over and over. And we, we see this all through the New Testament, Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Last week, Romans 15, 5 through 6, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Ephesians 4, bearing with one another in love, eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eagerly maintain it. Philippians 2, 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. That's just a small sampling of dozens of texts all over uh, the, the word that point to just one thing, unity in the people of God and the body of God. There's loads of scriptures about that. And these loads of scriptures on unity make literally no sense to us at all if we think of Christianity in the, in the Western individualistic mindset, if we think of it as a solo project just about me and, and, and my desire is at the highest good, the gospel doesn't just unite you vertically to God, it also unites us horizontally to one another. It's the combination of those the vertical implication and the horizontal implication that encompasses the full beauty that is the gospel. It it encompasses the reason that God sent Jesus. He didn't just send him for you alone to do your own thing. He sent him for a people. That's why unity matters. So far, Paul aimed to talk about unity in 14 and 15 uh, by talking about the unity of two groups, the weaker brother and the stronger brother. We have three full sermons on this, so we're not going to do a deep dive into that at all. Um, But the general idea is when there's this kind of knowledge gap or understanding gap, when some people aren't able to walk freely in their Christian liberties, where they feel a tension that maybe they're going to get in trouble or, or their consciences won't let them, that the gospel should unite people so much that those who who are fine with using their freedoms would lay some of them down to see the other people thrive. It's a gospel-centered view. In order to maintain unity, at some times I'll lay things down to see you flourish and see you grow in your faith. This week we'll take that idea and then it's gonna zoom out to a wider perspective on that. Uh, If you've ever seen drone footage, there was a time when uh, me and Blake uh, became quite uh, infatuated with drones and we'd watch YouTube footage and and try and analyze how do we do do this and things like that. I even bought a little drone and thought I was going to do some magical stuff with it. But there's a a, a fun shot that you see with a drone where it focuses close to something and you get this one perspective and all of a sudden it slowly goes out and then in editing, they make it hyper zoom out to like hundreds and hundreds of feet of away and you get this whole other picture 
picture of way more than you've ever seen before. That, that's kind of what Paul does here. The zoomed-in view was before, and now he's going to zoom out. The zoomed-in view was the weaker and stronger brother, and the zoomed-out 30,000-foot view is God is saving both Jews and Gentiles. God is bringing together enemies. Christ can unite them. Not just weaker and stronger brothers. God is literally bringing together enemies. It's hard for us to understand the hostility between those two groups of Jew and Gentile because we we see hostility everywhere in our world, but it's just a different hostility. We don't see the specific example in our context. But from the Jewish perspective, their people had been abused uh, repeatedly by the nations. From Egypt to Babylon, they, they were constantly in captivity, put in slavery, made to suffer, and, and brutalized. Because of that and their allegiance to the Mosaic law, there was this real divide between them and the, the other peoples or the, the nations. And it was such a big divide that even the Jews got a little bit cruel in their navigating other nations at different times, calling Gentiles dogs, thinking of them as less than human, believing they were outside of the, the, the people of God. There was never, ever going to be a way in. They're second-class sat- second citizens at, at the best. This is why the, the Good Samaritan parable is in the Word. What happens? A Gentile gets jumped and mugged and is beaten beside the road, and all these Jews just pass him on the other side going, man, I don't want to get dirty by that dude. I don't want to inconvenience myself. This was the gap. There was this thing of of hatred between them. And from the Gentile perspective, Jews were probably elitist weirdos. They claim to be the people of God. They've got all these weird things and blood and traditions and things that they do. And there's just this massive divide and hatred between them. And fueling this divide and this hatred was generations of fighting. Not, Not just one generation generation upon generation upon generation. From Moses' day on, all the way until Jesus started his ministry, um, there was fighting between those groups of people. Yet in the middle of those generations of fighting, Jesus comes to unite those people in himself, to bring peace between those who are enemies, so that all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, would be one. So they would be United. This idea seems great. Oh, Jesus came to unite these people, but it's not easy to erase in the hearts of humans hatred and hostility that has been formed there over hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, keep in mind this book is written to the church in Rome. This is the book of Romans to Rome, to believers in that place. And yes, it has value to us over 2,000 years later in the U.S., But in the middle of that immediate context, in that immediate moment, this divide was alive and well. What had to be partly in view is the Jewish believers in that day were still trying to figure out, how do I do life and faith without the law? How do I live in relationship with God without sacrifices and ceremonial cleanliness and and some of the feasts and the festivals? Like, how do I relate to him when all these years he's called me to, to do that? How do I follow Jesus without these Old Testament rituals and regulations And still many of them would be carrying on these Old Testament rules and regulations just out of fear that they would be rejected if they didn't, meaning many of the Jewish believers were the weaker brother from the example before. While the Gentile believers are getting saved in droves, they had no such issue. They're not wrestling with ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, They had no problem disregarding ceremonial laws that they never paid attention to. 
it was easy for them not to get hung up on feasts and circumcisions and all of that stuff. Uh, and it caused them to be kind of likely the stronger brother. There's not all of this stuff that they didn't feel like they were free to do. They felt the freedom that they had in Christ because they weren't tied to all these old traditions. Now, look at what that sets up. The people of Israel, God's chosen people of the Old Testament, the ones that the patriarchs belonged to, the ones that the law was given to, uh, the ones who worship was given to, the presence of God was given to, even King David was from their line. They now found themselves as the weaker brother, the one struggling, while the Gentiles were, were not struggling with all these needless practices or so they thought. You put that group of people who've warred for centuries together with a struggle on one who doesn't have a struggle, and, and there's going to be some pretty big fights and some pretty big tensions. And this is why Paul zooms out to remind the church of God's full plan. Even in the middle of the struggle that you find yourself in, Christ came to unite you. Christ came to be a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jewish believers, to show the fullness of God by confirming the promises of the the patriarchs. Jesus is the one who brings the blessing to Abraham's descendants. Jesus is the one who gets the Jews access into heaven. Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament promise to Jacob in Genesis. It is all Jesus and it is all because of him that Israel or the Jews are redeemed. But that's not it. That's not the only reason that Jesus came as a servant. He came also so that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, would be able to glorify God for his mercy. So they would be grafted in and brought in. What exactly is Paul trying to remind the church in Rome and us here, though? What's that saving the nations was never an afterthought? It wasn't some new idea. The Gentiles were always meant to be a part. It was always a part of God's grand purpose, not to just unite a couple people, but to unite the nations, people from every tribe and every tongue. Moreover, when we talk about saving the the nations, there's this uh, belief that maybe it's just foreigners, as if, oh, well, this is a call to missions. He's he, he wants us to, to be united here, but then send us into international ministry. And that's what he means. And that might be an implication of this. But in Paul's context, he's saying, well, God's plan is to save enemies, unite enemies. He's not just calling you to go to another nation and do a mission strip. He's calling you to be united with an enemy or a person that you would never be associated with in the here and the now right next to you. God's plan is bringing together people into the family of God who shouldn't fit together. It's to unite those who seem ununitable, right? Through what? Through the servant King Jesus. I'm going to bring these people together who there's no reason they should bring together. See, the Messiah has come so that God would accept both Jew and Gentile. In the context of the last couple of weeks, he's come so he would accept both Jew and Gentile, strong and weak, rich and poor, educated and not. This is why Ephesians 2.14 is such a beautiful text. Jesus triumphantly has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. How? Through his servant's sacrifice. All the tensions, all the fights, all the hostility, he's breaking it down. Which means these calls for unity from Paul are are not just about being nice. As if it's a general call to just be a decent person, like be nicer than you would. These are reminders that God is saving all peoples, people from all nations. It means when we bicker and we argue and we get to fights over nonsense, when we let opinions divide us, when we separate for no reason. And what have we seen over the last several years in the West and in our context even here? People aren't dividing over theological issues or who they think Jesus is. They're fighting over opinions and dividing. 
Paul's saying when we do that, when we fight, when we're just so quick to walk away from the table and say, forget you and go find another family and divide and not be in harmony, he's saying you're missing the point and you're missing the plan. God sent Jesus to unite the nations, even enemies, even people with different opinions, and even people who see their liberties differently. So be united. Why? Because the glory of God is at stake. This is what we saw last week. Paul prays that we be in such harmony, be so united in Jesus, that with one voice we declare to the world around us the glory of God. Which means whether the world hates us or loves us, which Jesus said a lot of them are going to hate us, whether they think we're antiquated or obsolete or plain wrong, when they see ones that were formerly enemies, that, were, that should not fit together, loving each other well, living as brothers and sisters, laying down some of their desires to build another one up, when they see this idea of people together united and caring for each other, people that used to be enemies, God is glorified through it. Does it mean they'll join? Not necessarily. But there's this profound thing when people see things that shouldn't be together, together. We go, I don't know why that works. And there's this intriguing thing where God is glorified. They may not accept the Lord, but they will see the hand of the Lord. God unites ununitable people through the servant king. The inverse of that is also true. If we are the church who is meant to be united and the world looks in and they see, man, they hate each other. They're fighting each other. They're, they're, they're podcasting and writing blogs and YouTube videos and, and trashing each other on social media. And, and man, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't believe some of the things I've heard them say about their church friends and all of these things. They're going, what glory does God have? This is as bad as my own family. And Paul looks to make sure that we understand fully how much this has always been the plan. And this in Pauline fashion is great. There's a lot of people are going, oh, this is some newfangled heresy. We're not really meant to be united. It was okay. Let me show you from all parts of the Old Testament that this has always been the plan to unite Jews and Gentiles, to unite enemies. The Old Testament is commonly divided in our day. Like when you take the books of the Old Testament, we can kind of separate it into law and uh, history and poetry and prophets. All right, in the first five books of the law, we can kind of just designate, okay, what kind of category is it in? In their time, or in older times, they would have divided it into three categories, the law, the writing, and the prophets. Paul goes to each of these three major sections to show us, hey, let me, let me just show you in each section of the Old Testament that this has always been the plan, to unite the nations, to save Jew and Gentile, to unite who shouldn't be together. It says, therefore, I praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name in verse 9. And praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all people extol him. These are both from the writings. This is Psalm 18 and 117. He goes, hey, you want to you know if it's in that part? Here, let me, let me hand you two. Verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is in his people, he's meaning the Jews. This is from Deuteronomy. This is from the, the law, Deuteronomy 32. You go, well, is it, is, it in the, is it in the law? Is it in the, in the Torah, the first five books? He goes, yeah, it's, it's, it's like right there in Deuteronomy. Then verse 12, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles is the hope of the Gentiles. That's from the prophets, Isaiah 11. You can systematically look through, and God's always been revealing this plan, whether we wanted to see it or not, that he is going to unite those who we didn't think would be brought together. This isn't a new heresy. This isn't a new idea. This is where we've always been headed. What struck me about this was Paul shows us God's saving hand in both groups. 
by not saying, hey, let me show you texts where both groups are civil to each other. Instead, he shows us texts where they're worshiping together. Right? Not, not just singing Jesus loves me together, worshiping. Where they're as one body, praising one God as one people. This isn't a fake display of togetherness. It's real. God will bring together what seems impossible in Jesus, and God the, will do the impossible through the servant king. He will unite us so much that our hearts worship him together. We're not segregated. We're not divided. There's not one person who worships and one who doesn't. We together will worship the Lord. Again, it's not just singing as the goal. It's a heart of worship as the goal from people who used to be enemies. Notice the depth of Paul's words. They're going to rejoice together. Like you rejoice out of what your heart is glad with. Can you envision yourself rejoicing with an enemy? No, probably not. You're going to praise together these songs of declaration. You're going to sing. Why? Because singing is a command of God. We're going to do the commanded worship that we're given together as a people. We're going to extol and revere the name of God, and then we're going to hope together. This is a heart of worship. The reality that God is bringing together the nations, even enemies. The reality that God, in a world of despair and hatred and outrage and fighting, is through the suffering and servitude of King Jesus bringing about something new, uniting former sinful people to a holy creator. And then he's doing such a complete work that he unites them together as well. Vertically united to the Father, horizontally united to each other. What's going to be the takeaway, though? What's the landing spot for this text? Because right? a lot of people, well, yeah, I knew he was going to do like the Jew Gentile thing. But how do, how do we take a hold of this now? If God can do that, if He can save sinful people and unite them to Himself, and if He can bring together people who used to be enemies, if He can, through the blood of Jesus, overcome the blood of wars, if Christ can make a family out of people who historically hated each other, this is Paul's message to our hearts, then what can't he do? What can't he do? What can't you trust him with? What is he not big enough to deal with? If you think, well, wait a minute, how'd you get there? Well, verse 13, it says it clearly. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Not just a little, you abound in it. This isn't like a, a classical closing. This isn't a benediction. This isn't like a, a monologue on a late night show. This is a prayer. Paul's prayer for believers is, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Not a little joy, not some joy, not your version of joy, not fleeting joy, not momentary joy, all joy. May the God of hope do that. The God who united people who shouldn't be together, the God who, who has the resume to pull this off, may he do it. And may the God of hope give you all peace. Again, not your peace or momentary peace or fleeting peace or some peace, but all peace. May the God of hope do this in your soul. Like he's praying this from his guts. May the God of hope do that in you fully to where you can't stand it. You're abounding in hope. I don't know about you, but man, I think we've got to learn to pray. 
Do you feel conviction in your soul over that type of prayer? Man, I'm good at praying for stuff. So good at it. Felt needs. Really good at reactionary prayers. I'm good at praying for my kid's headaches, for my kid to stop puking in the night, for my kid to stop having night tears. I'm good at praying for a good worship service, whatever that means. And Paul's laying out the mother of all prayers. May the God of hope fill you with all peace and all joy so you abound in it. You're just so saturated, it's just coming out of you. May the Holy Spirit do that work in you to where you overflow. Man, that's a prayer. See it in the prayer. If God has made a bigger plan than you could fathom and I could fathom. And if not only did he make the plan, he actually has the means to pull it off. Like we're full of a world of talkers. He makes the plan and then he does it. If he can reconcile sinners to himself and unite the ununitable, then Paul's message is that is the God of hope. It's literally on his resume. Throw all of your hope into him. And it raises the question, there's a natural progression in this that we'd have to prod, what do you hope in? Where's your hope in, in the here and in the now? Where do you go in a world of chaos to fill you with hope? Where, where do you run to? Where do you go when life goes sideways? What's the thing that immediately, like we, we, we have these knee-jerk reactions, immediately when things go sideways, what is the thing that your heart goes, oh, I better go do that? When you get stressed, what does your heart grab a hold of to try and calm you down. When you get anxious, what do you look to fill your hands with? When you get angry, what is your outlet to try and pour out the anger? When you feel disappointed and sad and frustrated or like a failure, what is the thing that you're drawn to run after? This is your hope. This is your little G God that you're putting your hope in. And hear me, because we have cycles and seasons where we hope in the wrong thing. If when things go sideways, you run to a television show just to, to get the time to pass by so you're not thinking about things anymore. If you go run to buy something for a comfort purchase and you jump on Amazon, run to Target or do some other thing to give you this short little blast of, uh, of happiness, if you immediately go, oh my gosh, I gotta get the kids down and fill your glass with a strong drink. If you run to desire to fill the gap, none of those things can and none of those things will help you. Paul's message is the only one who can hold the weight of your heart is God. The God of hope is the one who can meet you in your unrest in a broken world. The God big enough to bring enemies into the household of God and make them brothers and co-heirs in Christ is the God who can hold your hope and give you hope and secure your heart. Notice Paul ties together in the prayer hope in concert with joy and peace. And he isn't just throwing out vague words as if he's like, what's just three things they'd really like? Oh, hope, joy, peace. Like, there's a rhythm here. Joy is what you find your satisfaction in, where your heart is glad. What you run to for joy is a thing that tries to satisfy your soul and your needs. Paul's saying the God of hope can bring you the joy that you need. He is the God who is able to, to satisfy the longings of your Heart. We metaphorically run until our feet bleed, looking to give ourselves joy. 
jobs and money and family and desire and hobbies and a million things we run to as hard as we can. And yet the Savior who came and became a servant with hands wide open says, I have that for you. That's why he says in the Gospels, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are tired and worn down from chasing after the wind. Come find what your heart desperately is searching for in me. I will satisfy the deep parts of your heart. Similarly, when Paul prays for peace, it's steadiness and calm. Paul's saying Christian peace comes from knowing God will fulfill his promises. Hear that? In a world of chaos that things turn upside down, where can you find an anchor? The promises of God. God will fulfill his promises. He will not fail in any of the areas that he's promised. In a world that's chaotic, that always looks to take your peace, in a world where foundations, and and friends, let's be honest, in a world that even truth seems to have moved, where can you find footing? Well, in God. God will not change. The same God who brought together the Jews and the Gentiles is the God who will honor his promise and never leave you or forsake you. Think about the peace that that offers, right? The stock market falls and you're invested. Your job gets taken away. What happens all the time now? When somebody comes for your reputation, your livelihood, when your body turns in unexpected sickness, when a tornado comes and wipes your house off the stinking map, those are terrible things. Cause you heartache and pain and tears, and yet not a single one of them can affect the promises of God over you. None of them will rip you out of the love of God or the family of God. Man, this world, Jesus tells us, this world is full of hurt and disappointment. If you try and open it, it will let you down. And yet God is full of peace if you throw the full weight of your hope into him. You hear the promise in the depths of your soul. God isn't a liar. He's just not. He will not fall short. He will not be late. He will not change his mind. And he will not throw you away. He's making all things new and will never let you go. These are the promises of God if your hope is in Jesus for your salvation. I always make certain to clarify. This isn't, a, a, this isn't an angle in on a prosperity gospel. This isn't a promise that believing in God will somehow insulate you from trouble. These words are a promise that trouble can't steal your eternity. Trouble will still come. But if your hope is in Christ, then you understand even when trouble comes, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. And this is why Paul says what? What can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Can fear, can famine, can war, can nothing. And, and, and this is a message of this. It's trying to show you like the strong hand of God. Have you ever as a child tried to peel open your father's hand and like you weren't going to do it because it's a strong hand. He's trying to show you this. In God's strong hand, you are there and no one will ever peel you away. No one will take you no matter what the world does. I want to combine a couple of ideas from the last week as we close. And I'll just, I'll just say this. There's, there's a way to be overly pragmatic, but there's also wisdom in the Bible. And the, the Proverbs are a real book showing us, hey, these things line up these other things in, in your life. The last week, Paul talked about the God of endurance and encouragement. And this week, talk, the week he talks about the God of hope, 
who gives joy and peace. If you feel a lack in those areas in your heart, Paul also gives advice on how to help that out. Remember, he says that through the scriptures, we find endurance and encouragement. This is what, what he pointed out last week. You find it in the scriptures. Right? Often we want to stay away from the scriptures, and then in a moment of desperation, we want to pray a Hail Mary prayer. Oh, God, please give me endurance, and please give me in encouragement. And we nod our head, and we wish it to come true, and it just doesn't, and then we get frustrated. Paul's invitation is you can find those in the scriptures now, though. When you marinate in the word and you pray the word and you hear the word, why? Because in the scriptures you see the servant, Jesus. They all point to him. And through the Holy Spirit, he builds us up in those things and gives us an endurance and encouragement. What does that mean in early mornings when you have an open Bible and coffee and you think, I could still be sleeping? Late at night when you're trying to decide, like, can I fit one more Netflix show in? And you turn it off and open the Word. And on your work break, when you open the Word, instead of scrolling through the phone, you aren't doing something meaningless or trivial. You are building in your heart encouragement and endurance. And I get the cynic inside of us. who goes like, it sure doesn't feel that way. Again, God honors his promises. The word doesn't return void. He's building something and doing something in you when you approach it and you go, hey, uh, draw near to me as I draw near to you. Let me open these words. Let me see the Son. Holy Spirit, do this work. I need your encouragement. I need endurance. Let me see the beauty of your promises in this. When you go before it and do that, whether you have two minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, he's working. Today, as he talked about joy and peace, he says we find those things through believing. It's the practice of your belief, more specifically through believing those things end up being born out of our hearts. Believing and walking in line with the belief of God's promises is the seed that sprouts joy and peace by the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I mention these because we often feel, again, the, the lack of these things, right? We, I'm, I'm not encouraged. I'm not endure, I don't have endurance. I don't have any hope. I sure don't have any joy. I don't have any peace. And again, we throw up the, the Hail Mary prayer of desperation. We're not intending to believe. We're not intending to read. We're not intending to marinate in or ask the Holy Spirit to work, but we just throw in desperation the prayer out, and then we get so upset when it feels like the prayer hits the ground. Paul's showing us if you want those things, you can put those things in your path. Why? By reading the scriptures, praying them, believing in Jesus with your life. John Owen famously said this, believers have to put themselves in the path of allurement. Like, what? You have to put yourself in its path. And I think what he's referencing in that misunderstood line as we grow when our lives begin to put themselves in such a path that we encounter these things. When you put scriptures and you put prayer and unity and worship together and, and, and missional community and taking the, the sacraments and singing when you don't feel like it and coming to church when you'd rather sleep in, when you put the things of God in front of you in your path so that the affections of your heart can be stirred, it builds these things in you. When these things become normative, the Holy Spirit does a beautiful work by growing people in hope, joy, and peace. Remember, Paul's landing the plane in the book of Romans in front of us. All of these arcs of 
the, the brokenness of the world, there being no righteousness anywhere in the world. So Jesus comes in and brings righteousness in, and it's only through him, and it's only belief in him, and the promises that we find innate through all of the arcs of this beautiful book. He's ending with a remember of the full promise of God. Do not forget the full grandness of what he's doing. He's bringing together what looked impossible in Jesus. So strive to live in unity in light of God's full plan. And then strive to walk in endurance and peace. Strive to find hope and joy and peace in your heart. God is big enough to make big promises and then keep them. God is big enough to to fill you with abounding hope, even if you don't feel that right now. Put yourself in the path of those things. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you. It seems like Paul is laying the groundwork for his next writings to the church. The writings that cover the fruit of the Spirit. That's the path of, of allurement, this building sanctification that happens. You grow in fruit and sprout these things when you put certain rhythms in front of you and ask for the Holy Spirit to work. There is such a large mindset that hears that and goes, that's legalism. No, it's called faith. Remember, we're called to follow Jesus and Jesus tells us how. I don't have a huge call to action as we close, just an invite, like Paul prayed. Invite to find what you need in him. As we end and we take communion together, and if these things are lacking, it's totally okay to pray for them. Ask the Spirit to help you, and then understand there's some things you can put in your path to help you find those this week. Paul wants us to see that the plan of God is better. The promises of God and Jesus are sure. The blessings of God are available now if we choose to walk in them. God is bringing together the nations while he unites what was once broken in sin. The prayer is that we find hope in that. That there be moments of joy and peace where you're like, hey man, things are hard and things hurt. I don't understand why things happen, but there's this joy and understanding that my satisfaction is you and you you never fall short. There's peace in you and encouragement in you and endurance in you. This is what Paul prays for. This is what his hope is for the church in Rome and for us now. And this is our hope as well. And you guys can come back up. Friends, I, I pray that as we respond in worship and we leave some time, if those things are lacking, if your heart feels distant, why do you wrestle in prayer in that? The invitation would just simply be, why would you leave without praying? You have a God the Father who spoke to you, drawn near to you, made promises to you, and, and then says, hey, bug me. So there's beautiful moments at the end of service to just process what's going on in your heart with the Father and then come and take the elements knowing that Jesus' sacrifice is there for you to build you up and give you the hope that you need. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the call, do this, church. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you process and pray and take, you're remembering that the body and blood was shed for you, that the promises are sure, that they endure, and the hope is that your heart would be encouraged in that, that we would be built up as a strong, united people, not because of our ability, but the beauty of what Jesus has done. Would you stand and pray with me?
God, I pray that you draw near to us. Lord, that your will be done in us. We just ask, Lord, that you come and work in the deep spots of our heart. We need you. Holy Spirit, come straighten out any of the words today. Lord, I pray that you just let us see that there's hope, tangible hope in you. For the one that's joyless, for the one that peace seems gone, I pray that you draw near. For the one who lacks encouragement and endurance, I pray that you draw near. I pray that the table, that taking the elements would revive our hearts and let us see the beauty of Jesus. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts, draw near. I pray that the false things that we're hoping in, that we put those back in the right spot and run to you for what we need, Lord, and that you would meet us there. You are merciful and you're kind. Lord, restore hope to our souls. For those that have lost the joy of believing, would you restore that? Would you keep it, give a deep sense of satisfaction to your people and you? And a sense of peace, even in a chaotic world, that you are good and that you will never lie to your people. We ask that this be done. Draw near to us as we draw near to you, Lord. We expectantly ask for you to work in our hearts. Show us the beauty of your son. We pray that in your name. Amen.